Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. We were off last week, so I know you all had time to listen to the Beatles' self-titled double album known as the White Album, which is the topic of Beatles Part 9. I can't wait to talk about this moment in rock and roll history. It's truly fascinating. I love it so much. But before we begin, I wanted to announce the results. You guys have all been pestering me about the results of the poll I took last week. And uh, 51% of you, I'm not joking, 51% of you uh, said that you wanted me to cover the Beatles' solo careers. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do. Now, I promise it will be interesting. Uh, I know a lot of you were really advocating hard for me to move on to a new band. And I will, and I'll tell you uh, what that band is at some point. But think about all the things that happened after the Beatles' breakup. I mean, you have George's All Things Must Pass. Uh, you have John and Paul publicly fighting through their songs. You have Ringo coming out strong with hits like It Don't Come Easy, Paul's Band on the Run, Patty Boyd and Eric Clapton, and of course, the tragic murder of John Lennon in 1980. Now, if you want a new band, don't worry. By the summertime, I'll be covering another band, and I, I really can't wait to tell you what season two is going to be. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to get the Beatles' solo careers, and I think you're going to love it. Okay, don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us on social media and with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Uh, and without further ado, I bring you all Rock Band's Podcast, The Beatles, Part 9. <laughs> In the spring of 1968, after all four Beatles had returned to England from their trip to Rishikesh, India, they convened at George Harrison's house in Esher to record demos for their next studio album. They definitely were not short on material. Between the four of them, they had like 30 or 40 new songs that had been written or started in India. John came to the informal Esher sessions with the most new songs, and Paul had a ton too. After the band recorded a bunch of demos at George's house, they went to Abbey Road in late May of 1968 to begin their next album. This was their first album really since Sgt. Pepper. Magical Mystery Tour was more of a soundtrack project, so it was highly anticipated. And from the first notes that were recorded, it was obvious that this new album was not going to be all that fun for anyone involved. This is what Paul McCartney would call the Tension Album, because the sessions for what would be known as the White Album were infamous for being the lowest point in the band's morale. This is for a bunch of reasons. First of all, India was kind of summed up by most of the band as a disaster, which really displeased George because he felt that for the most part it was a valuable trip and they had a good time. He and John would often get into arguments because of how disrespectful John became about the whole philosophy, meditation, and of course the Maharishi himself. George was also a bit mad about Paul and George leaving early, and kind of the way that they brushed off India as a big mistake. Behind his back, the other three Beatles took to mocking George's interest in India and spirituality, and sometimes his condescending attitude towards the others by calling him names like His Holiness. Paul was in a bad mood for much of the recording of the album because he had been dumped by his longtime girlfriend, actress Jane Asher. The two had been dating for five or six years, and pretty much everyone assumed that they'd get married at one point. 
However, when Jane was away working, Paul began an affair with the American Francie Schwartz, and one day Jane arrived unexpectedly and caught him in bed with Francie. Jane abruptly left Paul and the two would never reunite, and Paul became a bit moodier, a bit drunker, and a bit bossier in the wake of this episode. He was pretty heartbroken. Ringo was starting to get fed up with the whole process of being a Beatle. He liked being a rock and roll drummer more than anything. He just wanted to jam live in the studio. And since Sgt. Pepper, he was really just waiting around the studio instead of drumming. When he was drumming or adding his part, he became more and more frustrated with Paul's demands and criticisms of his playing. The band was also extremely spread thin. They had just launched their business empire, Apple Corps, famously without the help and direction of their late manager, Brian Epstein. Not only were they going to grand openings and signing artists for their new record company, but they were also learning that not everything they touched turned to gold. Some of their first stores, for example, were closing because they couldn't make a profit. And a lot of their money was being wasted in the new Savile Row office on booze, food, and other non-essential expenses. They were also expected to be working on a cartoon for children, a yellow submarine, but the project fell victim to their busy schedules. The band provided only one side of recycled material for the soundtrack, and George Martin wrote and recorded a classical uh, piece of music for the other side. Not to mention, the Beatles had pretty much no part in the writing of the film, nor were they vo voicing their characters, so the Beatles' empire was just getting bigger and bigger, and not everything they did they were really involved with. The band was also at the peak of their popularity, and to be honest, they were acting like privileged, out-of-touch pop stars. They were always complaining that EMI studio equipment was crap, and that the studio staff wasn't working hard enough for them, even though the staff had to be present for the marathon Beatles sessions that required them to be nocturnal, and wait around for all the Beatles to come into the studio at their leisure. When they got to the studio, they weren't all that respectful to the staff, and began to spend a lot of time in the control room micromanaging the engineers and overriding and disrespecting George Martin. Their friend, Magic Alex, was also a thorn in the staff's side. He kept getting in the Beatles' head, saying that EMI was a terrible studio, and that he could build the best studio known to man, a 72-track recording desk, which would wipe the floor with the four tracks available at EMI. Magic Alex told them that he could build a whole bunch of fancy equipment with force fields and, and sort of new technology that didn't even exist yet. But really, he was more of a con man who was hanging on to the Beatles' coattails and got a pass because he was John Lennon's acid buddy. Nobody hated Magic Alex's presence more than George Martin, who completely saw through him. By far the biggest point of tension in the band was the constant, and I do mean constant, presence of John Lennon's new girlfriend, Yoko Ono. For years, the band had a no-wives-in-the-studio-or-on-tour policy. Sure, every now and then they'd have a special event and invite a couple of friends, uh, but when they were working, they didn't want anyone there, and the staff could be a little too intrusive for their liking. I mean, really, they just liked the four Beatles in the studio playing and talking. John shocked the rest of the band and the staff when he brought Yoko into the studio and intended to have her stay. From the first day that Yoko started hanging out in the studio, it was clear that her presence was going to be a real problem for the rest of the band. Yoko and John were literally inseparable. She sat next to him on a stool on the ground, and when he moved over an inch, she would move over an inch. The two would whisper to each other uh, all through the session. When they'd finish a take, John wouldn't ask Paul or George Martin what they thought. Instead, he asked Yoko who, with no musical background to speak of, had no problem giving feedback. For John and Paul, the greatest songwriting partnership in the history of pop music, 
a major roadblock in their creative relationship suddenly appeared. However, Paul was always pretty diplomatic and tried to respect Yoko because he didn't want to offend John, and plus, it was early days, so they didn't think Yoko would be around that often. They thought, this is probably just a phase. George Harrison was less diplomatic. He actually hated Yoko's presence with a passion. John and George were really close in a way that George wasn't with Paul. Uh, in John, George had an ally and a mentor, and John and Yoko's relationship drove a wedge between them, and George really resented that. On one occasion, John Lennon recalled an incident between Yoko and George, quote, George, shit, insulted her right to her face in the office at the beginning, just being straightforward. You know that game of I'm going to be up front because this is what we've heard, and Dylan and a few people said she'd got a lousy name in New York and gives off bad vibes. That's what George said to her, and we both sat through it. I didn't hit him. I don't know why, unquote. Now, it's true that there are two people in a relationship, and it's certainly not all Yoko's fault. If John didn't want her there, she probably wouldn't have been at the sessions. Not to mention, Yoko was often the victim of really unfair, sexist, and even racist attacks in the media. The Beatles were an institution. They were the biggest thing in Britain other than the monarchy. And they were probably even more well-liked than the monarchy, and did more around the world for Britain's image. Here comes this Japanese artist who's now constantly by their beloved John Lennon's side. People in the press, press lashed out at Yoko, saying she was stealing John and that she was controlling and manipulative. They called her dirty and all these really horrible names. Not really talking about John's behavior so much. They, the press saw it only as Yoko Ona, which just is not fair and it's not true. But at the same time, Yoko Ona really was a very confident, controlling person. And she definitely had an eye for fame and was quite ambitious. And I'm sure that for the band, it was really excessive that she never left John's side. All of a sudden, their brother really was a package deal. They couldn't create with him like they used to. Everything that they said to him uh, had to be said to some new girl that they didn't even know. And God forbid, if they seemed rude to Yoko, John would channel all of his rage at them. Not to mention, as Yoko got more comfortable in the studio, she had no problems criticizing the Beatles' music. Often, she would whisper a critique to John, who would relay the information to his bandmates, and they would just roll their eyes in response. Yoko also got a bit of a reputation for ordering around the studio staff. Jeff Emmerich recalls Yoko often asking John if he wanted tea, but never seeing her make it. Rather, she had engineers and assistants uh, do it. She would also be in the control room sometimes, telling them what to do and, and asking them what they thought about certain things. And as time went by, Yoko often became more vocal than John himself when it came to talking about ideas for the projects. She was at every business meeting, every jam session, studio session, photo shoot. Yoko's presence was definitely a toxic one for the band, but the Beatles would simply have to get used to it. The White Album sessions began pretty unusually. They often started with a John composition, which they did for this one too, the song Revolution One, which was inspired by the 1968 student-led protests in France against President Charles de Gaulle and the youth's attitude towards communism, Maoism, and revolution. John kind of provided an ambiguous, not for or against position that reflects his indecisiveness on the topic, really pretty interesting lyrically. Uh, then the band went on to record Don't Pass Me By, which was actually Ringo's composition. 
It's kind of unclear why they decided to record Ringo's song next. Usually a Paul song would be recorded after the John song. Um, Ringo was usually an afterthought. They would write a song for him towards the end of the sessions, but I think the band was trying to keep their dissatisfied drummer happy. Besides, he had written his first song, and for all intents and purposes, it's a pretty strong song. I mean, not many of us could write Don't Pass Me By for our debut song. Ringo actually wrote the song on piano, which uh, he was not a bad piano player, and that might be why Ringo is such a unique drummer, because his skills aren't just in the world of percussion. He definitely has an understanding of music, melody, harmony. His drumming is very musical. It's not just rhythmic or percussive. Ringo actually plays most instruments on the song, adding drums, piano, maracas, a whole bunch of other things, while Paul adds bass and a piano part. The song's signature element, that country-sounding violin, was played by a guest musician. The song actually went to number one in Denmark, but it was tragically labeled as a Lennon-McCartney composition, not by its rightful composer, Richard Starkey. Either way, Don't Pass Me By was pretty successful for Ringo. In July of 1968, the Beatles got to work on what would be the album's non-album singles. John fought hard for Revolution 1 to be the single, but Paul, George, and George Martin all agreed that it was just too slow. Instead of finding a new song, John recorded another, faster version simply titled Revolution, with the same lyrics. John and George turned up their amps to 11 and had the fuzziest, toughest guitar playing in their catalog. But it was actually Paul's song that would steal the show, much to Lennon's chagrin, and be the A-side single. After John's messy separation with Cynthia and Julian, Paul went to visit them at their home in Weybridge. He didn't feel good about the scorched earth approach to Cynthia. I mean, they were still friends, and he really he liked her, and he cared for Julian. He felt very bad for Julian, whose life was now that of a divorced kid, a divorced home. So he started singing a tune for Julian on his way over to visit them one day, singing Hey Jules. Paul said of the inspiration for the song, quote, I started with the idea Hey Jules, which was Julian, don't make it bad, take a sad song and make it better. Hey, try and deal with this terrible thing. I always feel sorry for kids in divorces. Their little brain must be spinning round in confusion going, did I do this? Was it me? Unquote. Paul would, of course, change the song to Hey Jude because it was easier to sing. The song is, of course, famous for the na-na-na-nas and is obviously one of the Beatles' biggest accomplishments. John liked the song enough, though he thought Revolution should have been the lead single. Uh, he actually thought it was about him and Yoko, though, saying, uh, you have found her, now go and get her. The recording of the song was not so easy, though. George Harrison, who was rediscovering his love for the electric guitar after a couple years out east, wanted to add a bunch of licks to the song. But Paul had a very specific vision, and they had a bit of an argument uh, about it. Paul said of the incident, quote, I remember sitting down and showing George the song, and George did the natural thing for a guitar player to do, which is answer every vocal line. And I was like, no, George. And he was pretty offended, unquote. George Harrison remembers, quote, Paul wasn't open to anybody else's suggestions. It was taken to the most ridiculous situations where I'd open my guitar case and go to get my guitar out and he'd say, no, no, we're just not doing that yet. It became stifling. Paul wanted nobody to play on his songs until he had decided how it should go, unquote. Obviously, Hey Jude didn't need anything, though. It would have been cool to hear what George would have played on it, but Paul's attitude about his songs was getting pretty intolerable for his bandmates. The session for the White Albums were also pretty grueling now. Songs would require hundreds of takes, to the point where everyone from the engineers to the bandmates were just fed up with the song by the time it was over. 
Head engineer Jeff Emmerich recalled, quote, John or Paul would come in and play a song on guitar or piano, and they'd tell us what it was about, and we'd think, wow, that's great. Then we'd eventually see it changing over a period of time. Sometimes it would get better with the endless rehearsing. Sometimes it would go downhill. It could get incredibly boring and depressing hearing them play the same song for nine or ten hours at a stretch, especially if it was getting worse and worse as they got more drugged and went off onto tangents, unquote. Emmerich got so fed up with the horrible atmosphere and work-life balance that he quit as head engineer after a few marathon days playing Obladi Oblada. There was definitely a darker, druggier side to the White Album's music. John and Yoko began experimenting with heroin, so sometimes they would really be out of it, and John started to make references to harder drugs in his music, in songs like Happiness is a Warm Gun, where he says, I need a fix because I'm going down, and Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey, where he says, the deeper you go, the higher you fly. The higher you fly, the deeper you go. Paul said about John's new interest in heroin, quote, he was getting into harder drugs than we'd been into, so his songs were taking on more references to heroin. Until that point, we had made rather mild, oblique references to pot or LSD. But now John started talking about fixes and monkeys, and it was harder terminology which the rest of us weren't into. We were disappointed that he was getting into heroin because we didn't really know how we could help him. We just hoped that it, he wouldn't go too far. In actual fact, he did end up clean, but this was the period where he was on it. It was a tough period for John, but often the adversity and craziness can lead to good art, and I think it did in this case." Unquote. John and Yoko, with a little help from George, also added the, uh, frankly, unlistenable Revolution 9, which is just a collection of tape loops made to sound like a revolution. It's avant-garde. Everybody really except John and Yoko hated it. George Martin thought it was nine minutes of useless, unpleasant noise, and when John showed Paul, the diplomatic but very unapproving Paul said, quote, not bad. Lennon answered by saying, quote, not bad? You have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, this should be our next bloody single. This is the direction the Beatles should go on from now on, unquote. I'm very glad that he was wrong about that. John wanted Yoko to be involved in the making of the music, and the other Beatles just weren't having it. At one point, Paul was recording a backing vocal, and John stopped him and decided to have Yoko have a go at it, during the recording of the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. Jeff Emmerich said of the moment, quote, Paul, who had been singing the line, gave John a look of disbelief and then walked away in disgust, unquote. During the recording of Obladi Oblada, which they played so much and but yet couldn't get the feel right, John Lennon abruptly left the session and came back a few hours later high as a kite. He was at the top of the studio stairs when he yelled to his bandmates, I am fucking stoned, before sitting down at the piano and playing the intro to the song at breakneck speed. The band followed behind Lennon, and the speed and tempo that Lennon played the song at in was the version that would be released on the album. Sometimes even in the state that John was in, they could really pull it off. The tension, marathon sessions, and drugs proved really bad for the Beatles' relationships. A lot of songs on the White Album were actually songs that didn't include all four Beatles. Paul was the only Beatle on songs like Blackbird, on Rocky Raccoon, and Martha My Dear, which is a love song for his sheepdog where he plays a magnificent piano part along with every other instrument, with the exception of the classical overdubs. 
John was the only Beatle on Julia, which was part love song for Yoko, part song about his mother, Julia. In fact, often the band members would be recording different songs in different rooms. George Martin said, quote, For the first time, I had to split myself three ways because at any one time we were recording in different studios. I became very fragmented, unquote. George Harrison said, quote, I remember having three studios operating at the same time. Paul was doing some overdubs in one, John was in the other, and I was recording some horns or something in a third. Maybe it was because EMI had a set release date and time was running out, unquote. George Martin pretty much lost his place as the adult in the room. One time he asked Paul to redo a vocal on Obladi Oblada, and Paul responded to the producer by saying, quote, If you think you can do it better, why don't you fucking come down here and sing it yourself, unquote. George Martin was so frustrated that he took an extended vacation at the end of the summer, essentially giving up his role as producer for a portion of the White Album, giving that job to the young assistant Chris Thomas. Nobody hated the new tense dynamic quite like Ringo Starr, who shocked his bandmates when he informed them that he was done. He was quitting and no longer wanted to be a Beatle. He was serious, too. He hated the new group dynamic, and he couldn't stand being ordered around by Paul. He also felt like he wasn't as close with the other three Beatles, and Yoko was just impossible to be hanging out with. Ringo Starr left the studio and went on a vacation to Italy with his family for two weeks. Ringo said of the incident, quote, I left because I felt two things. I felt I wasn't playing great, and I also felt that the other three were really happy and I was an outsider. I had a rest and the holiday was great. I knew we were all in a messed up stage. It wasn't just me. The whole thing was going down. I definitely left. I couldn't take it anymore. There was no magic and the relationships were terrible. I'd come to a bad spot in life. It could have been paranoia, but I just didn't feel good. I felt like an outsider. Then I realized that we were all feeling like outsiders, and it just needed me to go around knocking to bring it to a head, unquote. This is a huge moment and probably the lowest point in the Beatles' relations until the breakup. They lost their engineer, their producer was withdrawing to the point of not being involved, and now the first Beatle actually quit the band. And it was Ringo. I mean, Ringo was the guy who everyone was friends with. He was you know, the glue. He was the guy that was just pure fun, low drama. There might have been tension with everyone, but Ringo was also always good for a laugh, a beer, a joint. And now, I don't know if they took Ringo seriously, but they they sure acted like it. I mean, in his absence, they recorded Back in the USSR, which was both political satire, kind of a comedy song, and a knock at the Beach Boys. And uh, the other three Beatles filled in on percussion. Same goes with Dear Prudence, which Paul McCartney takes the drums on. Now, after two Ringo-less weeks, the band finally got together and pleaded with their friend to come back. Ringo said of this moment, quote, I got a telegram saying, you're the best rock and roll drummer in the world. Come on home. We love you. So I came back. We all needed a little shakeup. When I got back to the studio, I found George had decked it out with flowers. There were flowers everywhere. I felt good about myself again. We got through that little crisis and it was great. And then the White Album really took off. We all left the studio and went to a little room, so there was no separation and lots of group activity going on, unquote. It's true. That little room, uh, what Ringo's talking about, is when the band recorded the absolutely rocking Your Blues, which was a psychedelic blues song written by John Lennon in India. They went into a tiny room with like kind of weird acoustics, and the four of them turned up to 11 and just had a good long jam. Definitely one of the high points during the White Album. 
George Harrison was really blossoming as a songwriter, and he was starting to take an interest in rock and roll again, and leave the sitar to the experts. He plays some of his best guitar on songs like Sexy Sadie, Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey, Back in the USSR, Happiness is a Warm Gun. He brought to the sessions the harpsichord-driven political commentary Piggies and the angelic Long, 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 one of my favorites. It's based off of Bob Dylan's Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Uh, and he also brought the bright and trebly Savoy Truffle, which was about his friend Eric Clapton's notorious sweet tooth. George had developed a really close friendship with Eric Clapton, who was known as the best guitar player in England and really was rivaled only by Jimi Hendrix for the best guitar player in the world. He belonged to the psychedelic jam band Cream. Around this time, George co-wrote and played on the Cream hit Badge with Clapton. The The two moved near each other and would spend a lot of their days getting high, bumming around, jamming. Of course, Clapton would eventually marry George's wife, Patty Boyd, but that's a story for another day. Clapton comes into the story because George's best composition on the White Album, and really, in my opinion, one of the greatest Beatles songs ever written, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. The band had cut a few takes during the summer, but Harrison couldn't get the guys to take the song seriously. Then Ringo left, and this was a real rocker, so they shelved it for a bit. They needed a good drummer for it. George said of the early takes, quote, We tried to record it, but John and Paul were so used to just cranking out their tunes that it was very difficult at times to get serious and record one of mine. It wasn't happening. They weren't taking it seriously, and I don't think they were even all playing on it. So I went home that night thinking, well, that's a shame because I know the song was pretty good. The next day I was driving to London with Eric Clapton and I said, What are you doing today? Why don't you come to the studio and play on a song for me? He said, Oh no, I can't do that. Nobody's ever played on a Beatles record, and the others wouldn't like it. I said, look, it's my song, and I'd like you to play on it, unquote. Clapton had a bunch of excuses why he didn't want to play. He didn't have a guitar or an amp. He never heard the song. He thought they were just hanging. He wasn't prepared. But George really insisted. Clapton actually gave George a red Les Paul named Lucy a few months before. And at the time, Clapton was obsessed with Les Pauls, and he got one for George while he was on tour in the United States. And that was the guitar that was waiting for Clapton in the studio with his signature Marshall amp. Clapton remembers the session, quote, George felt our friendship would give him some support, and that having me there to play might stabilize the situation and maybe even draw some respect. We did just one take. John and Paul were fairly noncommittal, but I knew George was happy because he listened to it over and over again in the control room, unquote. This, to me, is one of the greatest guitar solos in history. I mean, the tone is extraordinary. The phrasing is just perfect for one take. Really, nothing else could go on this record because I think the solo is just so amazing. I mean, if you ever doubt Clapton as a guitar player, listen to Gently Weeps and remember, one take.
The White Album Sessions, while known for being a bit tense, weren't always all that bad. I think a lot of people tend to hear about 68, 69, and they think that it was all heroin and fighting. It's not true. Business, egos, drugs, and Yoko added to a lot of tension in the band, but these were still four insanely close individuals, and a lot of the session was spent, you know, laughing. And yeah, they got sick of recording the same songs over and over again, but they also loved jamming in the studio, and Ringo would never play the same beat twice, so the songs would often feel pretty fresh. And they really did want to make the best rock music in the world. Uh, One high point was when the band recorded Helter Skelter, the hard rock classic. Uh, McCartney read in an interview with the Who's Pete Townsend, who was bragging about his upcoming single, I Can See For Miles, which Townsend said was one of the dirtiest, heaviest, grunged out songs ever. The Beatles actually had a lot of respect for The Who, probably more so than The Stones, because they felt like The Who were really original, and John Entwistle and Keith Moon were just monster musicians. So in response to the interview, McCartney wanted to beat The Who to it. So he wrote Helter Skelter, with the intention of making a really heavy, dirty song. During the recording of the song, the band was having a blast, kind of the good old days, laughing, making fools of themselves. Ringo remembers, quote, Helter Skelter was a song we did in total madness and hysterics in the studio. Sometimes you just have to shake out the jams, unquote. The name of the album really came because the Beatles were unable to agree on a name, or rather because they were kind of feeling not that creative and not certainly not creative enough to name it and cover the album. So it was originally going to be titled A Doll's House, but that fell through. So they just printed the words The Beatles and a serial number on the album sleeve and called it a day. Pretty iconic. I mean, this is really a a pretty epic album cover, even though it's just blank white. There's so much to say about the White Album sessions. Musically, it's a towering accomplishment. There's such a diverse range of musical styles from folk, country, blues, just hard rock. Uh, The Beatles were also so good at telegraphing where music was going, partly because where they went, the music industry tended to follow, and partly because they saw a trend and wanted to be the best at it. In 1968, music was becoming harder, heavier. After the airy, psychedelic days of 1966-67, bands like Zeppelin were forming in 1968. Jimi Hendrix was releasing All Around the Watchtower and Voodoo Child. The Beatles were right there innovating with songs like Helter Skelter and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. The White Album is also really the gold standard for band, uh, like, band infighting and a band on bad terms. I mean, the Beatles always fought. They were like brothers, but during the White Album, there was a lot more resentment towards one another and their egos, business, and lovers really got in the way of each other just making music like the friends that they had been until this point. Somehow, though, it didn't stop them from making some of the best music that they would ever make. Thank you all so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, the beginnings of what was the Get Back sessions. We're going to be talking about Apple, more about the legal troubles that John and Yoko got into, George Harrison visiting the band and Bob Dylan in Woodstock. Can't wait. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcasts. And finally, share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. And until next week, listen to the White Album. All right, rock on. (laughs) 